This is the LarryInFishers.com podcast. My name is Larry Lannon, and I'm quite honored to have uh, a guest with me. My first transatlantic podcast I've ever done. I know mostly do uh, local podcasts here in Fishers, but I'm honored to have Natasha Bowen with me. She's the author of Skin of the Sea, uh, a f- great fiction book. Uh, Natasha, thank you so much uh, for taking time out to speak with me today. No, thanks for having me. And I feel special being your first transatlantic. <laughs> okay. Well, you are special in many ways. That's just one. I also have <laughs> I also have Erin Weir with me. Erin is with the Hamilton East Library. She's here to talk about the Books Build Bridges event coming up Saturday, September 30th. It's in the afternoon, 2.30 until 4.30. It's going to be held at the Forum Event Center. Uh, Natasha Bowen will be one of the speakers there. So, Aaron, we'll bring you in a little later to talk uh, more detail about that. But uh, thank you for joining me as well. Thanks, Larry. So let's so let's, let's get started. I'm going to, uh, of course, begin talking uh, to the author, Natasha Bowen. One thing that fascinated me is your background. Your parents are Nigerian and Welsh, and uh, you live, of course, in the United Kingdom. You're a parent yourself now. But I I always like to talk to authors. I like to ask about what sparked your interest in writing. And normally it it starts when you begin reading at a young age and then become interested in writing. Talk a little bit about how Natasha Bowen Bowen became a writer. Well, I love books. And I think I started reading when I was about three or four. Um, my mum's dyslexic, so she, at that age, she started, when I was that age, she started to skip over certain words and I would sound them out instead. And um, I don't think we had a TV at that point as well. So it was literally books or, um, yeah, or playing outside. And um, I just read a lot, bought books from church sales. Um, and then we have two different types of school, primary from four to 11 and then secondary from 11 to 16. And when I went to secondary school, I was still enjoying reading. I was still loving it. Um, apart from the books on the um, syllabus were not as exciting as, I think at that point I was reading Stephen King because I don't think why it existed back then. It was either you went from Judy Bloom to Flowers in the Attic, or at least I did. Um, and I used to read, I used to get my work done very quickly at school and I used to read behind my textbooks. Um, and I just, I used it as a way it was not just entertainment, it was a way to escape. And I wanted to be able to do that. I want to be able to do that. I wanted to be able to create worlds and stories and characters that people would just lose themselves in. And so I think the first little booklet or story I wrote, I was about six. And I think I'd stapled together these little pages to make this book and and, and had illustrated it as well. Probably wasn't very good, but my mum told me it was amazing. And um, then I, I I just carried on writing from then. I studied English at A-level, so that's 16 to 18 in England. And then I went to university and did an English and um, creative writing course. And then I got a job in the city working in a corporate company um, before I had children and didn't write for a couple of years because of that. Um, But it was always there. I'd write little bits here and there. Um, And I didn't really see a way into publishing. I didn't know anyone that worked in publishing. I was quite interested in it, but at that point it was very hard. Um, probably globally as well. Definitely here you had to, to do like an unpaid internship and I couldn't afford to do that. Um, I just carried on reading and enjoying. And then I think I took the pressure off myself and just wanted to write a story that I enjoyed rather than a story that I thought would sell or would get me an agent. 
in the end, I just thought, I'm just going to write the book that I would like to read. Because I've read so many books. And if I don't enjoy it, how can I work? Because you're often working on a book for years and years. If you're not enjoying it and you're doing it just for someone else, it's just not going to work. So I ended up writing the book that I wanted to read. And um, from the very beginning, just really loved it and wasn't focused at all at that point on anything happening with it, not even getting an agent. So it's like, I'm just going to write this book because it's amazing and I haven't read anything like it. So that was that. And that was probably the, there's the second book that I'd finished writing, actually. I'd written a book before that, but hadn't done anything with it. Well, I mean, obviously people, other people thought this was a good book as well. You made the New York Times uh, bestseller list, but I do want to ask this. I'm sorry, I have to ask this question from what you just said. Now, just how old were you when you began reading Stephen King? Eleven. <laughs> we like eleven. My We're goodness. Pet <laughs> yeah, Pet Cemetery. I think I was ten or eleven. My goodness. I have a thing for horror films, so I, yeah, I would. Richard Layman, Sean Hudson, all of those like nineties horror writers. I, I loved them. I was obsessed. Well, but you would, my wife would love talking to each other because she's a lover of that genre as well. So I have uh, read your book, Skin of the Sea. That's the New York Times bestseller. You paint a, a very fascinating fictional picture of a, of a spirit world in the 15th century, the 1400s. Um, it was really related to the start of the Portuguese slave trade that was going on at that time in Western Africa. Now, the story revolves around what we would call a mermaid. But I, what I found fascinating is, is mermaid was on the cover of your book. But if you read the text of your book, you never use the word mermaid. You use another word. I'll let you talk about that. But uh, how did you tap into those African stories and traditions related to what was happening on the African continent at that time? I think there were some you know, stories that I had growing up there was a lot of research that I'd done myself um, on African history as well and different myths that I hadn't heard of. Um, in English education, we didn't, we did learn about the slave trade, but we learned about the the economics of it and how great our empire was. Um, and so I did my own research and own learning. Um, and I'd come across Mamiwata before, um, and that's a name for kind of like a water spirit. It has different meanings depending on, who you're speaking to but in in skin of the sea i've used it instead of using the word mermaid just like i don't use the words slaver or slave trader is oibo which is um it means foreigner um in nigeria because i didn't want it to be a focus on first of all i wanted to have a different representation and then obviously a different name for mermaids so it's not the bog standard Eurocentric one. Um, and also I did then I didn't really want to focus it, although it's it's rooted, it's in the context of the beginning of the slave trade. I didn't want it the slave trade to be the entire focus. So I think by using different language and using language that's original to that culture rather than westernizing it kept the themes of the stories true. Yes, I would I would say you that was exactly what you uh succeeded in doing. Now, you do mention in your author's notes uh, at the end of the book that the story, The Little Mermaid, uh, was uh, one that made an impression on you. Explain how that story impacted the skin of the sea. 
I love mermaids and I love magic and fairies and monsters as well, not just like, yeah. Um, and I remember reading that book and I remember having different versions. I had the audio version as well, with like, you know, the little audio with the Walkman. Um, so you're listening to people read the Ladybird version. Um, and then as I grew older as well, I read how Hans Christian Andersen, like many um, European young men at that time, had toured around the world and had toured North Africa. And I kind of thought to myself, what about if he'd actually come across stories of water spirits in North Africa? And that inspired him. So even though the book is a spin um, on The Little Mermaid in some respects, I wouldn't say it's an actual retelling. I think the similarities are that she saves a boy. I think the similarities are that... um, she changes from from um, a mermaid to a human. But in my story, she doesn't give up her legs for a boy. Um, and the focus is on, on romantic love and, um, yeah, and trying to reach that. And I, while I love The Little Mermaid, it would be... I just think it's amazing to have stories of mermaids that originate in different cultures because just having the same type of stories over and over again can get quite boring um in terms of i love i love original i love completely original stories so one of my favorite books recently was iron widow which is just completely yeah completely blew my mind so i think i wanted to i wanted to while i love mermaids and magic i wanted to tell it in a different way um in a way that i recognize and loved and i wanted to see the representation of black mermaids in 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 fiction actually because the, the books that I were that I was aware of were um you know some picture books and a few middle grade and there wasn't anything that at that point that I felt that married the two together the kind of the the context of what was happening in West Africa at that time and the beliefs of water spirits that existed and that were translated across the diaspora yeah, you have uh, you mentioned that you love a mermaid, you love monsters as well, and you have some monstrous characters in this book. I will tell you, uh, there are some scenes of violence. This is definitely for young adults, not for small children. But uh, there are characters that you introduce to us that do not end up well in the end. Some do, some do not, and there's a lot in between. Here's my question to you as an author. That must be a tough decision. You know, how to handle these characters that you introduce to us, you let us get to know them as readers, and then they don't all end up well at the end uh, dealing with, with these monstrous characters. Uh, tell me how, as an author, how you work with that whole concept. I tend to be a little bit vicious, actually, as a... Um, and I won't... You've been very... Um, clever at not revealing what happens in the book but yeah I have there have been quite a few people that have been upset with me about um that particular character um but I think it it shows as well it's another example of that the love and family that they've built together as a group of characters in the reason and why that happens um and even Eshu as the main antagonist is not one of the things that I had to be careful not to misrepresent was Eshu is an Arisha um, and he's often portrayed as the devil 
in the West and he's not, he's more of a trickster. So in Skin of the Sea, you will see how, you know, at first you think he's, he's evil and he's doing this, but you'll see the reasons why he's doing it. Um, a bit like Magneto, actually, in X-Men. Um, the bizarre reasons that warp, warp them and, and, and why they're pushed to, and how they use their power in a, in, a, in, a, in a, you know, a not so good way. But I think it's, it's to, to, if you're making a dramatic impact, I think you tend to kill the characters that people love the most. Um, but that could be different for each person. So I think it was, I did definitely do that because I knew it hurt me to do it. And so I, I, I thought it would be quite, it would hurt readers. And that sounds quite bad. I didn't do it to be mean, but I think it's a necessary part of, of one of the themes of the book, which is love and sacrifice. And so, yeah, part mean, part it works with the themes. Yeah, Ishu is definitely the, the evil character, but I think you do something very interesting. A lot of very good authors do. The evil character is not totally evil. Ishu is like, okay, yeah, I do this, I do that, but here's the reason why I do that. And you sort of begin to understand where he comes from, and that that uh, adds to the complexity of the story, I think. What do you think? Yeah, it's not so black and white then. And I think when when you read Soul of the Deep... You'll see, an, you'll see, an, not to ruin it, but there's another layer to him that's interesting in that. And yeah, because I think, you know, life is not black and white. And I think the best stories are the ones that try to describe the layers and the complexities of that um, in a way that readers will relate to and can understand. Yeah, I, you know, I want to re- ask about something you've already mentioned. Uh, And that has to do with the fact that there's uh, the undertone of this is slavery. You know, the evil of slavery is also a part of the story. And uh, I don't know what it's like. You kind of related a little bit to what it's like uh, learning about slavery in in school in the United Kingdom and in the United States. You know, both the United Kingdom and the United States have histories with slavery. You know, we ended slavery at different times. It took a civil war to end slavery in the United States and didn't really end until about 1865. But I guess the question I would ask you, as someone who has studied the this whole issue and looked into some of this history, how do you think slavery should be taught in schools? I think that the, we can only do better in the future when we learn from the past. And I think that even if the past is difficult um, and makes us feel uncomfortable, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be examining it. Um, I think if you don't do that, then people can misrepresent what happens and manipulate it in different ways. And then that undermines where we are now because of what has happened. Um, and so I think it's really important for children. And I've, I've done this for my own children and children when I was a teacher, um, when the curriculum in England changes a little bit is informing them of, of, of what happens. And, um, and it's giving, it's giving children the facts so that they can, try and understand, like I said, the situation that we're in now um, and actually what happened and, and and even understanding, you know, generational wealth in different economies and and colonisation and, and the way that the continent of Africa has kind of um, been formed because of that and, and the way lots of things have been formed around the world. I think that those important things, those, those horrific times, in history should not be glossed over. And I think that children are intelligent enough to understand certain points and we owe it to them to make sure that they're aware of what's actually happened. I want to get back to the book because the main character is Simi 
And uh, she's what we would call a mermaid. You would call the, I think, Mommy Wata. Hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, in your book, in, in, in that uh, tradition. Now, Simi, the, what I find about Simi as a character, she's always trying to do the right thing. But, of course, doing the right thing don't, doesn't, what she thinks is the right thing at the time, does not always take her to a good place, and it causes some complications and really is the thrust of the story, her trying to make good on some of, of what she has uh, done in the past that she thought would be the right thing. So she has to atone for that mistake. That's where the story really goes in in your book. Uh, when you construct a story like this, how do you deal with, with a character like Simi who has this new role? She has memories of being a human. She has now been uh, named to be this, this mermaid mommy Wata person, but she struggles with these memories she has of her parents and of her previous life and uh, I find those flashbacks to be quite fascinating. Talk about how you put Simi together as a character and why you handled her the way you did. I wanted Simi to um, to try to. I wanted to represent the, the way that I think we're often, especially when we're teenagers, trying to find out who we are, um, being told who we are, perhaps feeling that we should be a certain way. And there's definitely a pressure, I think, when you're younger and even as you're older to do the right thing all the time. Um, and the right thing can change depending on who it is telling you what the right thing is. Um, and so I think with Simi, she's gone with her gut, um, but then she's also struggling and she's trying to do the best and be the best of what she is now. But she has those memories and she has to kind of, put the two halves of herself together um, and that affects the decisions that she makes in the story. I wanted to show as well that you, even though the consequences were quite bad for Simi, she still followed what she thought was right and she did what she thought was right um, for her. And she does struggle with that. I think, and I think it shows her conscience and how she wants to look after those people that she loves and cares about and how she wants to be perceived as well as, do, as doing the right thing. And I think, you know, we all love being told, well done, you've, you, you know, that was exactly the right thing to do. But what happens when you're not told that, but you still thought you've done the right thing and then you have to face the consequences and, and fix that. And I think that's life as well. Like you can only make the best decisions that you have at that moment and deal with the consequences afterwards. So I wanted to make sure that even though she's like this magical being, she's still representative of being human and, and what it's like to be a teenager and a person in general who's struggling with a world that's changing and that is quite scary. Yeah, that's interesting because you take her teenage years. That's when this happens, where she makes this transformation from being a human to being this Mami Wata mermaid. And uh, I think what you try to do in the book is is how a teenage girl would struggle with, with that sort of thing. You know, being taken away from her family and having those memories still come come back to her time and time again. Yeah, and so much trauma that she's already endured and then she's still going through it. And how do you cope with that? But I think it, it also the way that she does it and the way the other characters help her and they will help each other is that even when you're going through the worst things, um, they still 
find joy and happiness in other aspects and that gets them through those worst things and I think that's important to focus on because it can often seem you know when when bad stuff is happening that there's no way out and that you feel you know what are you going to do but I think in this story you see her constantly shifting and pushing and trying to find the best way and trying to stay herself um it's quite tricky actually but I'm glad that it 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 reads like that you know another theme of your book I believe is family um not just Simi's you know flashbacks memories of her own parents but there's the the character I haven't really talked about him Cola who's the human whom the two of them get together I won't I don't want to reveal too much I want people to read the book but they end up together on a quest to try to save not just Cola's family who's very dear to him but also all of humanity it it turns out and that's what makes it a very big story Uh, but it's, it's all part of that that same battle saving the family saving humanity and and uh I just want I mean, it begins with this whole idea of Cola being the uh, getting together in a rather unusual way with this Mamiwata mermaid, and then how they have a common purpose as the story moves along. I'm curious how you constructed the story quite that way. I really find that fascinating, and I'd like you to talk about that. I mean, there's there's aspects of romance in the book, but I didn't want it to be a complete focus on that. So I, I guess that's one of the main similarities with The Little Mermaid as well, how she has saved him. Um, but there's a, so in the beginning, they don't really get on massively well, but obviously they have this shared quest. And I think through that, they come to learn a lot about each other. And I wanted to explore the fact that you can have those found people in your life, perhaps friends, who become your family. Um, And so family is not just, you know, your biological siblings or your parents. It can be the people that become important to you in your life for different reasons. Um, And so that's why there is romance, but the focus is on the love that, like, Yinka and Bem and everyone has for each other by the end of the book. So it's it's how that quest and how their values um, have brought them together and help them to appreciate each other. That does. You do have that sense of family with these people who are not related by by blood, because I think it goes back to Simi. They all want to do the right thing, and they're all on on board with her and that entire crew. Uh, I've over the years, going back to the nineteen seventies, off and on, have been interviewing authors of various kinds, and I've always loved that, but. I want to ask you a question I found with an interview that you did recently. I think it was recently, but you told an interviewer that you wrote this book at the same time you were working as a teacher. Now, I've never been a classroom teacher. I have lots of relatives who are. I've been very close to many people who are in the teaching profession. I know how much work goes into teaching any kind of class at any level. How in the world did you write this book and teach a class at the same time? Well, the thing is, I have three children as well. And at that point, they were, mm, I think they were like six, five. The youngest was five or six and then 13 and then 15. Um, And it goes back to what I was saying before about writing the book that you want to read. 
because I loved it so much and I was so passionate about every aspect of it from the history to, to the myths in it, to the, um, the spirituality that it was, um, it was, it became an obsession. Um, so I would write on my lunch breaks. I would also sometimes write with my class because, um, the writing, I think, in English classes can be very prescriptive and boring. And I wanted to show them my processes and just to get them writing. So on a Friday afternoon, we'd have like the last 20 minutes of the day and they, I gave them all notebooks and we would just write. And we're not sharing if we don't want to. And it doesn't matter what you're writing. You could be writing la, la, la. Um, usually they would write la, 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 and then something else. Um, so it's just that joy of doing it. And I just sneakily would write bits here and there, um, taking my son to football practice in the car. And then I would type it up at the weekends. And it just, and I think this is the thing as well, like writing a book seems such a big thing to do. But when you break it down, even if you're only writing 100 words a day, eventually you'll have a book that's finished. And I think that was the main thing for me. It's just not giving up. And I think if you're passionate about the story and you love the story you won't give up even if you are massively busy you know one of the great uh, american authors mark twain once uh, said that he would uh, write every paragraph five times he wrote a book i assume you didn't have to do that well i you know i had to stop myself because i can be a perfectionist sometimes so i had to I'm, i give i allow myself to read something back twice once or twice and then i have to move on because otherwise I'll be on that first three chapters for like a year and think it's not good enough, but you can just come back and fix it. So, um, yeah, I have to force myself to carry on. Otherwise, I would be stuck on chapter three. Let me uh, bring in Aaron Ware of the uh, Hamilton East Library. Uh, Natasha Bond is one of the three authors set to speak uh, on September 30th. Tell us more about what's uh, coming up there. We have a panel of three authors who uh, each have written stories that are retellings of classics or fairy tales in some sort. Um, so the other two authors are Christina Soon-Torvat, who wrote A Wish in the Dark, which is a retelling of Les Mis. But it's the children's book. Um, and it's set in a similar to Thailand era, or place. And Sonali Dave wrote the the adult book that uh, we're featuring called uh, Pride, Prejudice, and Other Flavors, which is obviously a retelling of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Um, But it's set in modern-day San Francisco with a family that moved from India, the generation before the main characters. So we have a panel set with Natasha talking about her retelling of The Little Mermaid, Skin of the Sea. Um, with the other two authors and our moderator, Ruth Sparks, who is our maker in residence in our Ignite studio for um, the next couple of months. And we'll talk about how you all created your stories from an original story, but obviously went in completely different directions to make something amazing. And so we've given away many copies of each of the books at the Hamilton East Public Library. Um, I believe almost all of the copies are gone, so that's fantastic. Um, But people who come to the event can have them signed at the end by each of the authors. So not only can they see the authors in person, but they can get their book signed too. Very good. Natasha, I have one last question for you, because when I finished your book, 
I could tell, all right, this author has set this story up for a sequel. And in fact, in the copy that I have, I don't know if you did this with all the copies, but I did see you teased a little bit the first part of the next book, which is uh, called uh, Soul of the Deep. So can you give us uh, just a little taste of what Soul of the Deep is all about? So Soul of the Deep, I'm trying not to spoil it. Um, I suppose it's an extension of Simi um, writing the wrongs that she's caused, but on a massive scale um, this time. There's consequences for... um, for them managing to topple Eshu or what happens with Eshu at the end. And they have to face those. I think in Skin of the Sea, we saw Senegalese fairies. Um, and in Soul of the Deep, we will see like the African version of the Loch Ness Monster and um, a Madagascan man-eating tree, um, which does it doesn't sound like it makes sense at the minute, but if you read the book, it does. Um, there's more Mami Water as well. I wanted to explore more of that world. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the first sort of quarter of it is is under the sea. Um, and then you will find out what happens with Simeon Collar and whether they have their happy ending or not. Excellent. Erin, uh, anything you'd like to add before we wrap this podcast up? No, I'm just excited to see Natasha and Christina and Sonali all talk about their books on September 30th. So, Natasha, I've tried to ask a number of questions, but uh, anything you would like to add as we finish up here? No, I I just think it's exciting to have a book about Black Mermaid so well-received, to see covers like that that are becoming more and more common nowadays, Um, you know, like a Black Mermaid with natural hair and a story that originates from west africa so i'm excited i'm excited to come as well and and speak some more it's great to have you uh, coming to fishers indiana and here is your book it is skin of the sea that's the one you'll be talking about she also uh, spoke of her new book uh, which is soul of the deep so natasha bowen thank you so much such a pleasure to speak with you today and uh, and uh, Aaron, we thank you for uh, giving us the information about the event coming up september 30th thanks to both of you Thank you.